I believe the second half of the 20th century will be known as the age of Nixon. Why was he the most durable public figure of our time? Those were the words of Senator Bob Dole, a man who had lived through the bulk of the 20th century, who had participated in or witnessed firsthand many of the major events of his time. The second half of the 20th century was full of larger-than-life figures, men like Dwight Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Ronald Reagan. And that's just in the United States. There was also Mao Zedong in China, Margaret Thatcher in England, Mikhail Gorbachev in Russia, and Pope John Paul II in Rome. But of all of those figures, Dole felt that one man stood out, so much so that the era should bear his name. That man was Richard Nixon. On the face of it, this claim might seem an overstatement. Dole did say this during Nixon's funeral, a setting where people are apt to be generous to the person who is being remembered. And of course, it is a matter of opinion. How do you compare the legacies of presidents or public figures in general? How do you measure impact or influence? But Dole was making a point worth considering. Richard Nixon was one of the most important men in American history. Think about this. Two men are tied for the most appearances on a national ticket for a major party at five times each. The first is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The other is Richard Nixon. He was nominated for and won the vice presidency twice under Eisenhower, was nominated for the presidency in 1960, losing to JFK, and then nominated again for the presidency in 1968 and won and renominated for a second term winning again in 1972. He was on the national stage from the late 1940s to the mid-1970s, a little short of three decades. And his influence continued well after his presidency. Many of our presidents, as influential they may have been, were on the ticket just twice and came and went after eight years or so. Think of Dwight Eisenhower, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama all men of great importance, all two-term presidents. And yet, their time in national office spanned eight years. Nixon spanned almost three decades. I remember chatting with an older gentleman one time about history. If I can recall correctly, he was right smack in the baby boomer generation, probably born in the late 40s or early 50s. And he once told me that even after Nixon had lost the 1960 election to Kennedy, you still had the sense that Nixon would be back one day. He just had a presence that hovered over American politics. In many ways, it hovers over us still. When you think about it, the Nixon image is prominently fixed in the national psyche. The image of Richard Nixon waving goodbye and holding up his arms, flashing the victory sign, is iconic and featured in almost every documentary about him and about the 1970s. He's been featured in endless movies, and not just serious ones like Forrest Gump or Oliver Stone's Nixon or Frost Nixon, but also in big blockbusters like X-Men Days of Future Past and comedies like Dick or Elvis and Nixon. Few presidents have been as parodied and scrutinized as Richard Nixon. Few have elicited such strong feelings. For many Americans, he remains the ultimate black sheep among the presidents. After all, he was the only one to resign. It's the one thing that schoolchildren learn about him, that he resigned in disgrace. When they think Nixon, they think Watergate. 
But even early in his career, years before he won the presidency, he provoked controversy wherever he went. To many, he seemed untrustworthy or uninspiring. Many Americans simply hated him, and many still do. Multiple public opinion polls, like a Gallup poll in 2010, consistently ranked Nixon among the least liked presidents in American history. His 1960 opponent, John F. Kennedy, typically has a 75 to 80% favorability rating and a 5 to 15% unfavorability rating. By contrast, Nixon's numbers are 20% favorable and 60% unfavorable. Yet despite all this, somehow, Richard Nixon remained on the national stage far longer than any other president and got himself elected to national office time and time again. In 1968, the United States was in the midst of trauma. The American people were divided along generational lines and by race and gender. Assassins were taking down public figures. Riots were breaking out. Half a million American soldiers were stuck on the other side of the world in the most unpopular war in the country's history. Hundreds of them were getting killed and shipped back in body bags every week. At the same time, America was still the leader of the free world, and its mortal enemy, the Soviet Union, was growing stronger and stronger. Both sides pointed more nuclear weapons at each other than ever before. In the midst of all this chaos and confusion, America turned to a man that it had elected before to the vice presidency, but had rejected for the presidency in favor of JFK. A man who provoked intense loyalty, as well as intense hatred. Now the nation's hopes for order and peace rested on Richard Nixon's shoulders. How he handled this great burden is the subject of this episode of This American President. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Most Americans remember the Richard Nixon of the 1970s, when he was a middle-aged man serving as president. I remember the Nixon that was still alive in the 1980s and 90s, when he was an elder statesman. But many forget that there was a time when Nixon wasn't a longtime public figure perpetually haunting American politics, but rather a young rising star. He was just 39 years old when he won the vice presidency, the second highest office in the land. To this day, he remains the second youngest man ever elected to that office. Buchanan's vice president, John Breckinridge, was the only one younger, becoming vice president at age 36. 
Nixon was born in January 1913 in Yorba Linda, California, the second of five boys in a poor Quaker family. Two of his brothers would die young. His younger brother, Arthur, died in childhood in 1925, and his older brother, Harold, in his 20s in 1933. They were a family used to hardship and struggle. The Nixon family had a stern household. They observed the Quaker practice to refrain from dancing, swearing, and drinking alcohol. His father, Frank Nixon, had his share of business failures, running a farm, a grocery, and a gas station. Young Richard Nixon attended public schools, got good grades, and played football. He ended up graduating from his high school third in his class. But it was in debating, both in high school and in Whittier College, where Nixon really excelled, winning several debate tournaments. He ended up getting a full scholarship to attend Duke Law School, where, again, he did very well. After graduating law school, he became a practicing attorney back home in Whittier, California, and met a high school teacher named Thelma Ryan, who went by the name Pat. Nixon was smitten and pursued her with the same dogged determination he would demonstrate throughout his career. She turned him down several times, but she finally relented. They were married in 1940, when Nixon was 27 and she was 28. They would end up having two daughters, Trisha and Julie. Also in those early years, Nixon had applied to work for the FBI. He was about to be hired, but budget cuts led to his appointment being canceled. When World War II broke out, Nixon applied for the Navy, where he was admitted as a lieutenant junior grade in the reserves. When promoted to lieutenant, he requested duty at sea and was sent to the South Pacific, where he worked on logistics. He received several commendations and resigned his commission when the war ended in 1946. By then, Nixon had political ambitions. He was recruited by California Republicans in 1946 to run against the incumbent Congressman Jerry Voorhis. He won the race and took office as the representative from California's 12th district. Nixon took office during the start of the Cold War. President Harry S. Truman, as we covered in previous episodes, was crafting America's containment policy against the Soviet Union. In the United States, there was a real fear of communist subversion, and there was good reason for it. Communist spies were embedded in the U.S. government, including those who had relayed secrets about the atomic bomb to the Soviets. Nixon began to make a name for himself as a staunch anti-communist. He co-sponsored a bill that required the registration of all members of the Communist Party in the United States. Nixon worked to get it passed in the House. Although it failed in the Senate, the bill got Nixon some publicity. He was assigned to the House Committee on Un-American Activities. It was here where Nixon became a national figure. He spearheaded an investigation into former State Department official Alger Hiss to examine allegations that he was a communist spy. Hiss eventually was convicted of perjury. This case catapulted Nixon onto the front pages of the newspapers. He ran for the U.S. Senate to represent California in 1950 against Congresswoman Helen Douglas. Nixon's campaign distributed a pink sheet that listed Douglas's, quote, communist line foreign policy votes. The campaign was ugly, and Nixon's opponents accused him of red baiting. They labeled him Tricky Dick a nickname that would follow him for the rest of his career. Nixon won the race and took his seat in 1951. As a senator, 
Nixon attacked the Truman administration's policies as being soft on communism. By 1952, the Republicans had lost five straight presidential elections, but it finally had a candidate with a chance of winning. He was one of the most popular Americans alive, Dwight D. Eisenhower. By then, Eisenhower was the great hero of World War II, having commanded the successful invasion of Normandy and served as the head of America's major alliance, the North American Treaty Organization, or NATO. Eisenhower secured the nomination in a tight race. Richard Nixon, not even 40 years old, was chosen to be his running mate. Eisenhower, by then, was in his early 60s, old enough to be Nixon's father. Nixon was selected for many reasons, partly because his youth balanced Eisenhower's age, partly because his strong anti-communism would help appeal to conservatives, especially since Eisenhower was seen as more of a political moderate. But there was also the benefit of having an attack dog like Nixon on the ticket. Eisenhower preferred to remain above the fray, not engaging in political attacks. Nixon, on the other hand, could hit hard against Democrats and opponents, allowing Eisenhower to remain aloof. During the campaign, a major controversy erupted where Nixon was accused of having a slush fund. It's a fascinating episode in Nixon's life, one that nearly derailed his candidacy and perhaps his political career. We could probably spend a lot of time on this particular moment, but that will have to be for another episode. Nixon did end up defending himself on national TV. 60 million people watched the speech, which was the largest television audience ever up to that time. It would later be remembered as the Checkers speech, because Nixon mentioned a dog named Checkers that he and his family received as a gift. He ended up convincing the American people of his innocence and remained on the ticket. The incident showcased Nixon's impressive survival skills in the political arena, skills he would use often in his career. That fall, Eisenhower won the presidency in a landslide, and Richard Nixon, at age 40, became the vice president of the United States. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Nixon was one of the most active vice presidents up to that time. Before Nixon, vice presidents were virtually invisible and had no significant role in an administration. All that changed under Eisenhower. The president included Nixon in cabinet and National Security Council meetings, even allowing him to chair some meetings in his absence. Eisenhower sent Nixon on high visibility trips all around the world. Nixon famously debated Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev in 1959 in Moscow, going toe-to-toe with the international leader of communism on the world stage. It was a sign that Nixon was being groomed for the presidency. Despite all this, Eisenhower never fully warmed up to Nixon. The president indicated privately to confidants that Nixon was immature, 
and lamented that few people seemed to like him. When Eisenhower ran for re-election in 1956, there were doubts as to whether Nixon would remain on the ticket. Eisenhower left Nixon waiting for several weeks before making a decision to keep him on. They ended up winning in another landslide, but the awkwardness between the two men remained. 1960 was fast approaching, and it was a presidential election year. Dwight Eisenhower was about to leave office. The Republicans had pushed through the 22nd Amendment in 1951, limiting all future presidents to a maximum of two full terms. They did it, in no small part, as a response to FDR's winning the presidency four times, and wanted to make sure that something like that would never happen again. So that left the presidency an open seat in 1960. As vice president, and an active one at that, Nixon was the logical successor to Eisenhower, and he easily captured the Republican nomination. The Democrats that year turned to a former colleague of Nixon's from his time in the Congress, the junior senator from Massachusetts, John F. Kennedy. In 1960, Dwight Eisenhower was 69 years old, the oldest president up to that time. By contrast, his two potential successors were much younger. JFK was 43 years old, and Nixon was 47. As the nation entered the 1960s, it was turning the page to a new generation, to more youthful leadership. The question was which young leader would America choose? Either Kennedy or Nixon would be the first of what would be known as the greatest generation to serve as president. On paper, both men had much in common. They had both served in the Navy during World War II, were elected to Congress the same year, and had been members of the House and the Senate. But there, the similarities ended. Nixon's main advantage was his experience. He had been vice president for two terms and could point to being an active player in the administration. But Kennedy had something Nixon didn't have. Charisma. Kennedy's eloquence and rhetoric captured the imagination of the American people. In comparing the two, historian Richard Reeves commented that while Nixon was a young leader, he was more of an old man's idea of a young man, serious and dutiful. But if Nixon was a throwback, Kennedy was rock and roll. He was handsome and dynamic. He projected youthful vigor. To many Americans craving energetic leadership, Kennedy seemed to be the perfect man to lead the nation into a new era. Kennedy and Nixon faced off in the first televised presidential debates in American history. Historians disagree about how important these debates were in determining the outcome of the election, but it is clear that for television audiences, Kennedy came across quite well. He looked calm, collected, comfortable in his own skin. Nixon did fine in the debate. In fact, radio listeners felt that Nixon had won, but more Americans than ever before were following politics on television, and the reality was that the camera was kinder to Kennedy than it was to Nixon. That November, Kennedy won one of the closest elections in American history and became the 35th president of the United States. It was a devastating defeat for Nixon. John F. Kennedy was the man of the hour, and Richard Nixon was now in the political wilderness. Even more galling was the fact that there were reports of irregularities in Chicago during the election, and perhaps that Kennedy had benefited from some shady moves by the city's mayor, Richard Daley. 
Some even called for Nixon to contest the result of what they believed was a rigged election. Nixon ended up deciding against it, in what many of his supporters called his finest hour. Nixon, they say, spared the country from a rancorous result and protected Kennedy from a cloud of illegitimacy. When the electoral vote was tallied in Congress, Nixon, as vice president, had to preside over the count that made his defeat official. During the ceremony, he took the high road, saying, quote, This is the first time in 100 years that a candidate for the presidency announced the result of an election in which he was defeated and announced the victory of his opponent. I don't think we could have a more striking example of the stability of our constitutional system and the proud tradition of the American people of developing, respecting, and honoring institutions of self-government. In our campaigns, no matter how hard-fought they may be, no matter how close the election may turn out to be, those who lose accept the verdict and support those who win. It is in that spirit I now declare that John F. Kennedy has been elected President of the United States. But Nixon remained embittered by the claims of foul play in Illinois. And it went deeper than that. Kennedy and his team represented something that Nixon had grown to resent, the Ivy League Eastern Establishment. Unlike Nixon, who was born in a poor Quaker family, Kennedy had grown up in luxury and had gone to the finest schools. JFK's father, Joseph Kennedy, spared no expense in funding his son's campaign, to the point that people accused him of buying votes. Nixon saw people like the Kennedys as elitists who were born with advantages he never got to enjoy, and who thought that they could get away with anything they wanted. It was a resentment that Nixon would hold on to, and one that millions of Americans would one day share with him. He would later say, quote, The guys from the best families are most likely to develop that arrogance that puts them above the law. Nixon ran again for public office in 1962, this time as governor of California. But again, he was defeated. It was another crushing loss. Most Americans assumed his political career was over, and yet he wasn't even 50 years old. Nixon's career had once been so promising, but now it appeared dead and buried. Think of those who lost the presidency in recent elections. People like Mitt Romney, Al Gore, and Hillary Clinton. Whatever you might think about them, the sad thing is that when you lose the presidency, you're branded a loser. Well, imagine if Romney had lost his Senate race in 2018. Or if Al Gore ran for governor in 2002 after losing the 2000 presidential election to Bush and had lost again. Well, that's where Nixon's career stood. He seemed destined to be among American history's most prominent losers. Meanwhile, the 1960s began with a sense of optimism, especially with the young Kennedy family in the White House. But the nation would soon descend into division and chaos. JFK was assassinated in 1963. The new president, Lyndon B. Johnson, would escalate American involvement in Vietnam. That war would become unpopular as casualties piled up. Racial divisions deepened. In the 1966 midterm elections, Richard Nixon traveled across the nation campaigning for Republican candidates. In doing so, he earned the loyalty of many in the GOP. The Republican Party made gains that year. 
By the 1968 presidential election, the nation was in turmoil. As I said earlier, political leaders were being assassinated. The war was unpopular as ever. Throughout the whole time, Richard Nixon was plotting and campaigning for his ultimate goal, the White House. Americans saw the State of the Union, and they didn't like it. Many of them thought back to the good old days, the 1950s, before the chaos of Vietnam and the divisions in the country. Eisenhower was in the last years of his life, but Richard Nixon, his former vice president, was available for service. For many Americans, Richard Nixon was a throwback to the 1950s, that simpler, more peaceful time. And Nixon had the perfect slogan for the moment, law and order. His campaign portrayed him, the former lightning rod for controversy, now as an experienced statesman. He vaguely promised peace with honor in Vietnam, but without specifics on how he would forge that peace. The messaging resonated. Nixon again gained the Republican nomination. President Johnson, a Democrat, could have run for re-election in 1968, but he decided not to so he could focus on Vietnam instead of campaigning. Instead, Nixon faced Johnson's vice president, Hubert Humphrey, in the general election. But it was during the election that some historians believe Nixon engaged in what they consider near-treasonous behavior. It's possible that Nixon felt that for him to win, he had to be as dirty as he felt the Kennedys had been with him in 1960. Throughout 1968, the Johnson administration had sought an agreement with the North Vietnamese to end the fighting. Johnson was a Democrat, but his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, was under pressure by the left wing of the Democratic Party to break with Johnson and criticize the administration over the war. Some historians believe that because of this, Johnson felt Nixon, despite being a Republican, was closer to his position on the war, that he could trust Nixon to prosecute the war effort better than his own vice president. Peace talks with the North Vietnamese continued, but one of the biggest problems was the position of America's ally, the South Vietnamese. They feared that any agreement might leave them to fight North Vietnam alone without American support. According to historians like Melvin Small, the Nixon team had ties to a woman named Anna Chennault, who was from China, had married an American general, and was a strong supporter of Chiang Kai-shek's regime in Taiwan. Apparently, she was connected to the South Vietnamese government and played a liaison role between them and the Nixon campaign. Nixon's team apparently suggested to the South Vietnamese government in Hanoi that they reject the deal offered by Johnson and wait out for a better deal under a potential Nixon administration. In other words, the Nixon campaign, according to some historians, had engaged in sabotaging the Johnson administration's peace efforts. President Johnson was said to have known about what Nixon was up to and, understandably, was outraged. Johnson announced a bombing halt on October 31st, just before the election. But two days later, the South Vietnamese rejected the deal. Melvin Small believes South Vietnam would have done this regardless of what the Nixon campaign was up to. He also says that Johnson wanted to reveal what Nixon had done but didn't do so because it would have exposed the FBI's surveillance of the Nixon campaign. No one ended up being prosecuted for treason. There are many commentators who believe that Nixon did indeed sabotage the talks. 
If true, it was only the start of the hardball tactics Nixon would employ as president. Regardless of what happened, that November, Nixon defeated Hubert Humphrey in a narrow race. It is still considered one of the greatest political comebacks of all time, especially when you consider where his career was in 1962, just six years earlier. Richard Nixon attained the goal he had sought for most of his adult life. He was now the President of the United States. Few men had ever had a more tortuous path to that office. Nixon reflected on that journey during his victory speech. Having lost a close one eight years ago and having won a close one this year, I can say this. Winning's a lot more fun. (laughs) This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. On January 20th, 1969, Richard Nixon took the oath of office as the 37th president of the United States. In his inaugural address, he spoke in lofty terms to a nation desperate for peace. The greatest honor history can bestow is the title of peacemaker. This honor now beckons America, the chance to help lead the world at last out of the valley of turmoil and onto that high ground of peace that man has dreamed of since the dawn of civilization. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment, that we helped make the world safe for mankind. This is our summons to greatness. Nixon came into office with great ambitions for himself and his country. Just like his rival JFK, Nixon believed he could leave his greatest mark on history and foreign policy. It's sometimes said that some presidents are focused more on domestic policy and some more on foreign policy, while Nixon was a foreign policy president. In 1967, he said, quote, I've always thought this country could run itself domestically without a president. You need a president for foreign policy. The American economy is so strong, it would take a genius to ruin it, whereas one small mistake in foreign policy could blow up the world. During his time in the political wilderness, from 1961 to 1967, Nixon traveled around the globe, absorbing more and more knowledge about the world, carefully formulating his views. And those views centered on the foremost foreign policy challenge of the United States at the time, the Cold War. In previous episodes, 
we covered how Nixon's predecessors crafted a strategy to deal with the Soviet Union, the policy of containment. We learned how, under President Truman, America committed to resisting the expansion of communism. It was really a compromise between those who wanted to oppose the Soviet Union, and maybe even push it back from its current boundaries, which was a strategy called rollback, and those who wanted to accept the Soviet Union as a fact of life, perhaps learn to coexist with it peacefully. Containment was a compromise between those positions. The idea was to prevent the Soviets from expanding by supporting allies economically so they could stand up against Moscow. It was hoped that the pressure from these allies on the Soviet Union would influence Moscow to see that it was in their interest to be less threatening and to play a more cooperative role in the world. The perception of a grave Soviet threat led President Truman to take tougher measures, to use force to prevent communism from spreading, and to take up more of the burden to stopping communism. Truman ended up nearly tripling the defense budget and committing ground troops to prevent the expansion of a communist proxy state in Korea. Concerns that America was overextending itself in its struggle against communism especially when it got bogged down in a war in Korea, led the next president, Dwight D. Eisenhower, to implement a more economical version of containment in the 1950s. It was called the New Look Strategy. New Look was based on the concept of massive retaliation. This called relying less on countering the Soviets' every move, and more on offsetting their advantages by aiming at their weaknesses. Eisenhower believed that the United States could counter the Soviet Union's massive conventional force by issuing a blanket threat to use nuclear weapons in almost any situation. This would reduce the cost of defense, since instead of building a tank to match the Soviet's tank or matching the size of the Soviet army, the United States would simply deter the Soviets through the threat of an overwhelming nuclear attack. Indeed, throughout multiple crises during his presidency, more often against the communist Chinese than the Soviets. Eisenhower let it be known that he was considering the use of nuclear weapons, and as the former Supreme Allied commander, this threat held weight. Nixon, as vice president, was part of that team and loyally supported the president. At times, Nixon appeared even more hawkish than Eisenhower. When the French were struggling to hang on to Vietnam in 1954, and the communist government in the North threatened the pro-Western government in the South, Eisenhower was pressured to commit ground forces. Nixon was one of those who supported strong military aid to the French. Eisenhower affirmed the United States' support for South Vietnam, but resisted sending in boots on the ground. Eisenhower might have been cautious in Vietnam, but he repeatedly maintained massive retaliation as his policy. In some places, he implemented the more aggressive policy of rollback. This involved heavy use of CIA covert operations. Under his watch, the United States overthrew governments in Iran and Guatemala, and the United States involved itself in places like the Congo and in Cuba, all for the purpose of defeating communism. Covert action, again, for Eisenhower, was a matter of economy. He feared that the United States could bankrupt itself by trying to counter the Soviets' every move, and felt that reliance on cheaper means, like nuclear weapons or covert action, could get the job done. Eisenhower's fear of overextension, 
and reluctance to use conventional force was not based on ambivalence against the Soviet Union. While some believed in coexisting peacefully with the communists, Eisenhower utterly rejected this position. He saw the world in black and white terms, believing that every nation had to choose which side they were on, and if you were not with the United States, you were with the communists. Many criticized Eisenhower for these views, whether it was massive retaliation or his unyielding anti-communism. They felt his black and white view of the world was simplistic. They said that massive retaliation was a dangerous game. They asked, would the United States really be willing to start a nuclear war in every single potential confrontation? And if America really wasn't willing to do that, its bluff would be called. America might lose its credibility. These critics, instead, called for a policy of flexible response, which basically meant developing the means to counter the Soviets at multiple levels, both tactical and strategic, through a wide spectrum of actions, whether it meant the use of special operations, counterinsurgency, conventional, or nuclear forces. That way, they believed, deterrence would work on every level. This idea, flexible response, had many high-profile supporters, from Harvard professor Henry Kissinger to Army Chief of Staff Maxwell D. Taylor and John F. Kennedy. To Eisenhower, flexible response was delusional. He had lived through two world wars, where events in Europe started in one country and exploded into total war across the globe. In the nuclear age, he felt that massive retaliation was the simple recognition of the fact that seemingly isolated incidents were no longer isolated. Everything had global implications. So if the Chinese threatened Taiwan, then what was at stake wasn't just the island of Taiwan, but the security of the entire world. Eisenhower felt that, at a time when the planet was divided between the free world and the communist world, any conflict had implications that could lead to nuclear war. So why not put nuclear war up front at the beginning? And he also felt that, if nuclear war was on the table, the odds of war would actually be lower, because nations would be less inclined to act up if they knew that nuclear holocaust was a possibility. Whatever one believes about massive retaliation versus flexible response, it's hard to argue with Eisenhower's results. He kept the peace throughout his presidency. His successors, Kennedy and Johnson, whose administrations were full of advisors advocating flexible response, eventually found themselves bogged down in the jungles of Vietnam. Kennedy and Johnson didn't share Eisenhower's concern for overextension. It's why JFK said in his inaugural address that the United States would, quote, pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, and oppose any foe in order to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Kennedy and Johnson both felt that the United States could spend more in defense and more in general to provide the tools needed to guarantee greater security. To be fair, as historian Evan Thomas writes, it's likely only Eisenhower could have gotten away with massive retaliation. He was, after all, the great hero of World War II. He had instant credibility on the world stage when it came to defending America, something that Kennedy and Johnson both lacked. They both struggled to maintain their own credibility as anti-communists and felt the need to look tough, something Eisenhower never had to worry about. 
By the presidential election of 1968, the nation started to worry about what Eisenhower had tried to prevent, overextension. The North Vietnamese proved to be a formidable foe. Americans once had a can-do attitude, and it's not hard to understand why. They had gotten through the Depression, and along with its allies, won World War II. Now they were struggling to defeat a relatively small third-world country on the other side of the world. The problems at home and abroad led Americans to question themselves and their country's capabilities. Whereas they once believed themselves to be a force for good, as more bombs were dropped in Southeast Asia, and as they heard the stories of atrocities committed by American soldiers, they wondered whether they were still on the side of right. And they wondered with all of the blood, toil, and treasure being expended in Vietnam, whether they could sustain a war with so many issues to deal with at home. Behind it all lurked the Soviet Union. Up until then, the United States had a clear superiority in nuclear capability, but the Soviet Union was catching up. Ever since Khrushchev's humiliation in the Cuban Missile Crisis, where he had sent missiles to Cuba to offset their nuclear advantage, but then had to remove them, the Soviets vowed to achieve nuclear parity with the United States. To give you an idea of how unequal the nuclear stockpile was, when the Cuban Missile Crisis was going on, the United States had 226 Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles, or ICBMs. The Soviets had about 75. The U.S. had three times more ICBMs than the Soviets. The U.S. had 144 submarine-launched ballistic missiles. The Soviets at zero. And the U.S. had 1,350 long-range bombers that could carry nuclear weapons. The Soviets just had 190. America had seven times more long-range bombers than the Soviets. Clearly, when it came to nuclear firepower, the United States had an overwhelming lead in 1962. Compare that to the situation just seven years later, in late 1969, just at the end of Nixon's first year as president. By then, the Soviets actually had more ICBMs than the United States, 1,200. The United States had little over 1,000. And the Soviets were still behind on submarine-launched nuclear missiles and long-range bombers, but they were closing the gap. The Soviets had 230 SLBMs, and the United States had 656. The Soviets had 150 long-range bombers, while America had 540. Some began to ask, what's really the difference between a few hundred ICBMs and a thousand? Did it really matter who had more of these weapons? If a nuclear war broke out, both sides already had sufficient nuclear weapons to destroy the other side. The extra hundred in the stockpile, as some would say, would just make the asphalt rumble. At some point, people felt that building more or trying to perpetually maintain more nukes than the other side was just overkill. But the Soviet buildup did mean something. It meant that gone were the days when the U.S. president could threaten massive retaliation as credibly as Eisenhower did. Nuclear parity meant that both sides could inflict a roughly equal amount of damage on the other. It also had a symbolic meaning. It was the acceptance that what many considered to be an immoral regime in Moscow had the power to destroy us. Accepting Soviet parity was, to many, the acceptance of an existential and immoral threat. America's dominance as a world power wasn't over, but it was waning. 
After World War II, America had been the only world power relatively unscathed from the war and enjoyed a couple of decades as the world's economic giant. But now, not only were the Soviets reaching nuclear parity, but Europe and Japan were rising economically and geopolitically. And although the Chinese were part of the communist bloc and had been closed off from the world, there was a growing sense that they, the most populous nation on earth, couldn't stay isolated forever. This was the context with which Richard Nixon took office. He now faced a situation where America had felt like it had maxed out its military intervention abroad and was more wary of its limitations than ever before. It was a time when Americans, previously ever optimistic, were getting a cold, hard lesson in reality. Perhaps it's no surprise that Americans turned to Nixon, whose foreign policy views had evolved to the school of thought known as realism. It was a fascinating transformation for a man who was once known as a stern anti-communist, arguably to the right of President Eisenhower. For many, opposing communism was a moral issue. Communism was known to be tyrannical and aggressive, something offensive to many Americans. Therefore, there was a moral imperative to stop it. Most people assumed that as an anti-communist, Nixon had adhered to that moral imperative. But by 1968, Nixon had adopted realism. It may not have been clear at the time, and it wasn't clear exactly when this change had taken place, or even if it was a change. But by 1968, Nixon saw the world in pragmatic terms. Before I get into the realist worldview, I'll have to add that Nixon found an unexpected ally in his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger. I say unexpected because Kissinger, for years, supported and advised one of Nixon's chief rivals in the Republican Party, New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller. In fact, Kissinger once admitted he had hated Nixon for years and felt he was, quote, the most dangerous of all the men running to have as president. Henry Kissinger, born Heinz Alfred Kissinger in Bavaria in 1923, came from a German-Jewish family. His father was a teacher and his mother a stay-at-home mom. In 1938, when Kissinger was 15, his family fled Nazi persecution to London and then made their way to New York City. He excelled in his studies, eventually enrolling in the City College of New York, where he studied accounting. Around this time, he was naturalized as a U.S. citizen. In the middle of his studies, he was drafted into the Army during World War II. Since he was fluent in German, he was assigned to military intelligence. He would go on to see combat, participating in the Battle of the Bulge. When the war ended, he completed his bachelor's degree at Harvard University in political science. He stayed at Harvard for his PhD, which he obtained in 1954. His dissertation examined balance of power politics in 19th century Europe. From then on, Kissinger cultivated an expertise in nuclear weapons and foreign policy. He wrote books on the subject, garnering more and more recognition, and began working for groups like the Council on Foreign Relations, the RAND Corporation, and the State Department. As I alluded to earlier, he began advising Governor Nelson Rockefeller. But when Rockefeller's presidential hopes faded, he soon found himself working for Richard Nixon. When Nixon was elected president, he chose Kissinger as his national security advisor. 
Together, Nixon and Kissinger would work to reorient American foreign policy, in part by centralizing presidential decision-making more than ever before. Eisenhower had held National Security Council meetings to foster in-depth discussions with his advisors. Kennedy relied on several advisors and met with them one-on-one. Their management styles were different, but they still got a range of advice from multiple people. Those days were gone under Nixon and Kissinger. These two men alone ran the show. They cut off almost everyone else, marginalizing even cabinet secretaries. Will Rogers, the Secretary of State, was an old Nixon friend, but he found himself repeatedly out of the loop and humiliated by the lower-ranking Kissinger. And it didn't help that Nixon and Kissinger were suspicious of bureaucracies. They saw them as unimaginative and untrustworthy. Nixon referred to State Department employees as, quote, striped pants faggots in foggy bottom. There were times when Kissinger would take actions, like giving orders to the military, even without Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird's knowledge. Nixon and Kissinger became so close that, together, they were nicknamed Nixinger. Both men were, in many ways, brilliant, but both full of immense pride and insecurity. Throughout their time together, they found themselves allies, but also rivals. They achieved many successes together, but each would complain about the other when the other seemed to be getting more credit. Kissinger viewed Nixon with a mix of admiration, curiosity, and maybe even a little hostility. Many years later, Kissinger discussed his impression of Nixon. He, he was driven to excel. This was his outstanding quality. And work was everything to him. And work and service. Uh, it was not, he, uh, there are two kinds of ambition an ambition to be somebody or an ambition to, uh, to do something. His ambition was to do. He wanted to be known through his achievements, not through his personality. How do you explain the aspect of his personality that, notwithstanding maybe whatever the resentment was about Harvard or places like that, that he chose you? who worked for Nelson Rockefeller. He chose Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a Democrat. He chose George Shultz. He chose uh, James Schlesinger. He chose a lot of people uh, noted for intellect. Uh, First of all, he was a kind of intellectual. What he, the way he most liked to spend his time was in his hideaway in the executive office building, playing classical music, and making notes on a yellow pad. He didn't like to see people, and he didn't at all like to see people he didn't know. So he was a strange type of politician in that sense. An introvert in an extrovert's profession. An introvert in an extrovert's profession, and uh, it is an amazing achievement that with this attitude, he he became presidential candidate twice, uh, was elected uh, three times actually was elected twice and uh, was on the whole a successful politician history is complicated the story of human progress is long messy and riddled with controversies big and small on conflicted we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, 
the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Nixon had similar feelings about Kissinger. He admired his brilliance, but was also fully aware of his foibles. Ray Price, one of Nixon's speechwriters, wrote, quote, The care and feeding of Henry was one of the greatest burdens of his presidency, but he, speaking of Kissinger, was worth it. Nixon later wrote that Kissinger was, quote, so enormously endowed with extraordinary intellectual capacity. He once told Gerald Ford, quote, Henry is a genius but you don't have to accept everything he recommends. So here's where I refer back to the concept of realism. Nixon and Kissinger were both realists. And their realism, in a sense, matched the time as America faced the realities of its limitations. Their view flowed from the belief that the United States must accept the world as it was rather than what people wished it to be. Historian John Lewis Gaddis wrote of Nixon and Kissinger's thinking, saying, quote, There lingered in the United States a reluctance to accept the fact that conflict and disharmony were and would continue to be inescapable characteristics of international life. There was still the belief that somehow the United States might transcend the international order instead of simply having to operate within it. These unrealistic hopes and the corrosive effects of reality upon them had produced oscillations between isolation and overextension in the American approach to the world. What was needed was the realism to accept the world as it was, together with the ingenuity to make the best of it. Realism and idealism. These elements are often in constant tension in American foreign policy. The United States is a nation dedicated to the high ideals of liberty and equality, but it exists in an imperfect world where ideals often take a backseat to reality. As a result, America finds itself sometimes struggling to reconcile the two, sometimes having to make decisions that appear, at least on the surface, to compromise its ideals. The founders demonstrated their idealism by declaring all men are created equal and going to war with a monarchical government. But they also demonstrated their realism by allying with one monarchy, namely France, to defeat another, the British. The founders were dedicated to ideals by believing that the people were endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that government existed to protect those rights. But they were also realists in believing that men were fallen and when given power, were prone to abuse it. It's why they created a system of checks and balances to prevent anyone from getting too much power. Only by accepting the reality of the world and the self-interested nature of mankind did the founders believe America could attain its ideals of freedom and equality. These ideals, 
to many, defined what American exceptionalism was all about. The idea that America was different, that it adhered to certain ideals, exceptional ideals, and it showed that it was different by how it acted. There were certain unavoidable moral elements to this. If one believes in the ideal of freedom and rights, one accepts the notion that protecting the rights of man is the right thing to do. There is an element of something being a moral good. Protecting rights is morally right, while violating them is morally wrong. According to American founding philosophy, King George III was morally wrong to oppress the Americans. The Americans were morally right to rebel. By the 20th century, progressive presidents would take this idealism and moral righteousness to a new level. President Wilson's idealism would lead him, at the end of World War I, to reach for unprecedented lofty goals, like ending all future wars and spreading democracy. He hoped his League of Nations would create a world government that would accomplish these ends. His critics believed that he was abandoning the Founders' realism, a fundamental understanding of human nature. For Nixon and Kissinger, this excessive focus on idealism was, in the real world, very dangerous. It led policymakers to buy into foolish, impractical ideals like ending all wars. In doing so, America would be wasting resources on ideas that would not work, and it would overextend itself. Realists often criticize Wilson, reminding us that his League of Nations failed to prevent World War II and the rise of aggressive fascist governments in Italy, Germany, and Japan. Strangely enough, Nixon admired Wilson, but believed that looking at the world from an ideological or moral perspective, that America had to act in morally righteous ways to adhere to its ideals, was foolish. Realism also dictated a new way to look at America's adversaries. At this time, the great adversary was the Soviet Union. As I said earlier, many Americans felt that they had a moral imperative to stop communism. But Nixon and Kissinger believed that this was dangerous thinking. To them, the ideology of the country was not that important. Regardless of ideology, all nations had legitimate interests. By extension, the Soviet Union had legitimate interests also. This type of thinking, Nixon and Kissinger's thinking, was heresy to some. Anti-communists often pointed out that the Soviet Union was based on an ideology that saw the world as a clash of classes and therefore did not recognize the legitimacy of nation-states. Many communists saw the nation-state, which was the foundation of all Western international relations, as either a temporary accommodation on the road to a stateless future utopia or a bourgeois creation to oppress workers. This line of thinking also led anti-communists to refuse to recognize communist China. But Nixon and Kissinger ignored this. Rather than looking at the world from an ideological and moral plane, they viewed the world based on power and interest. It was also partly based on the idea that ideology was just a surface-level justification for a country to rule its own people. That even if America was a Western Republic and the Soviet Union a communist state, America did not have any moral superiority based on ideology. Some would say that this was a cynical view of the world, that power ruled everything, and that ideology was just a power play. But Kissinger and Nixon accepted it as the best framework for international relations. They both felt that America had to accept the Soviet Union and the Communist Chinese as a fact of life, at least for the time being, rather than trying to eliminate it. 
It also meant a willingness to engage with America's adversaries, to even make deals with them, with an eye toward forging mutually beneficial agreements. Realism also meant recognizing the fact that the world was catching up with the United States, that there was more parity geopolitically. It meant stopping the race to maintain all-out superiority in various arenas like conventional or nuclear weapons. Now, instead of superiority, the U.S. should look for sufficiency, having sufficient weapons to deter its enemies rather than trying to guarantee victory in the event of conflict. This wasn't totally inconsistent with the principles of previous administrations. It was expensive to maintain superiority, and Eisenhower feared that America would bankrupt itself trying to do so. Perhaps, if the arms race could be restrained on both sides, a lot of money could be saved. So there was an element in Nixon and Kissinger's realism about recognizing America's fiscal limitations. For years, the United States held to a two-and-a-half war doctrine. That meant that the U.S. planned to be able to fight two-and-a-half wars at the same time, two major wars and one minor war. This standard was informed in part because of America's experience in World War II, where it had to fight two major wars simultaneously, one against the Japanese and the other against the Nazis. Nixon changed the standard to one-and-a-half wars, so one major war and one smaller war. According to Nixon and Kissinger, accepting parity could actually be a good thing for the world as a whole. If you've ever read much of Kissinger's writings, there's one concept he goes back to over and over, and that's the idea of the balance of power. Essentially, it's the idea that international systems are more safe and more stable when power is more evenly distributed among multiple players. Nixon explained it later during his presidency, when he said, quote, The only time in the history of the world that we have had any extended period of peace is when there has been a balance of power. It is when one nation becomes infinitely more powerful in relation to its potential competitor that the danger of war arises. Nixon could point to examples when Europe was at peace because most of the nations on the continent were roughly equal in geopolitical power and no one sought too much power or influence. When France under Napoleon, or Germany under Hitler, expanded too much, the balance was disrupted and war would result. This was a departure from previous thinking on the Cold War. Whenever the Soviets seemed to get ahead in any arena or to close the gap, Americans felt threatened. When the Soviets went into space with Sputnik, Americans freaked out and demanded their leaders do something about it. Kennedy had run in 1960 warning about a missile gap in which the Soviets were supposedly ahead of the United States in building missiles that delivered nuclear weapons, and he promised to rectify it. To Nixon and Kissinger, if America maintained superiority, the world would actually be less stable. Stability would come only when more countries were relatively equal in strength. During his presidency, Nixon specified which countries he felt should partake in this new global balance of power. Quote, I think it would be a safer world and a better world if we have a stronger, healthy United States, Europe, Soviet Union, China, and Japan, each balancing the other, not playing against the other, an even balance. This is interesting because, you have to remember, for decades America had spent billions of dollars trying to counter Soviet strength, and at times trying to undermine it, and yet here was Richard Nixon, 
the same Richard Nixon who rose to power by attacking his political opponents as being soft on communism, saying that he felt that a sufficiently strong Soviet Union and communist China would be in our interest and in the world's interests. It was a remarkable transformation for Nixon personally, but also for American foreign policy. And you have to think about guys like JFK, who constantly felt that they had to prove that they were tough on communism. Imagine if Kennedy said he had felt that America would be safer with a strong and stable Soviet Union and China. He would have been attacked as soft on communism. And yet here was the famed anti-communist Nixon saying it. Ironically, this is actually kind of what George Kennan had in mind. Kennan, as we covered in our Truman episodes, was a major architect of America's containment policies against the Soviets. You may recall that his plan called for countering the Soviet Union by boosting five centers of economic and military power. As things turned out, once Cold War tensions increased, Truman and Eisenhower accepted the idea of a more bipolar world, a zero-sum game between the Western nations and the communist ones. But Nixon and Kissinger now accepted more of Kennan's view of a multipolar world, believing it was far more stable and seemed to account for the great complexity of the world. Kissinger himself wrote in 1968, quote, A bipolar world loses the perspective for nuance. A gain for one side appears to be an absolute loss for the other. Every issue seems to involve a question of survival. The smaller countries are torn between a desire for protection and a wish to escape big power dominance. A more pluralistic world is profoundly in our long-term interests. Realists believe that there would be a natural equilibrium in a multipolar world, but that equilibrium would be achieved through different layers. Of course, every major power has different strengths and weaknesses. You could measure geopolitical power in many ways, militarily, economically, and politically. In 1973, Kissinger wrote, quote, In the military sphere, there are two superpowers. In economic terms, there are at least five major groupings. Politically, many more centers of influence have emerged. So finding an equilibrium in the geopolitical power of different countries was not an exact science. That brings up another element of Nixon and Kissinger's foreign policy, and that's the idea of linkage. Linkage was simply the belief or recognition that all issues between nations were interrelated. This went against much of how American foreign policy was practiced. For instance, negotiations on trade were usually conducted separately from negotiations on limiting arms. There was a belief that if both sides were at an impasse on one issue, like limiting arms, that shouldn't preclude potential areas of agreement elsewhere. Nixon and Kissinger felt that since these issues were interrelated, they should actually be linked together. Nixon himself said, quote, I recognize that previous administrations took the view that when we perceive a mutual interest on an issue with the USSR, we should pursue agreement and attempt to insulate it as much as possible from the ups and downs of conflicts elsewhere. This may well be sound on numerous bilateral and practical matters such as cultural or scientific exchanges, but on the crucial issues of our day, I believe we must seek to advance on a front at least broad enough to make clear that we see some relationship between political and military issues. 
I believe that the Soviets should be brought to understand that they cannot expect to reap the benefits of cooperation in one area while seeking to take advantage of tension or cooperation elsewhere. Through linkage, Nixon and Kissinger hoped to bring strength in one area to bear on another. For example, Nixon was willing to allow America to sell some technology to the Soviets, but the Soviets had to pressure the North Vietnamese to make a deal with the Americans if they wanted that technology. The Soviets didn't take to linkage quite easily. They would rather continue compartmentalizing the issues. The Soviets knew that the Americans would want to find ways to pressure them to improve their human rights record. They preferred to keep that issue off the table during negotiations of nuclear weapons or trade talks. Nixon and Kissinger also encountered resistance from their own bureaucracies since they were naturally siloed from each other, and that made linkage very difficult. But linkage, if done right, would allow the United States to leverage its strengths more effectively in any given area of conflict. At any rate, all these issues of linkage and negotiations would be aimed at promoting a balance of power. Gaddis describes the Nixon-Kissinger approach as, quote, applying leverage selectively when necessary, but with the realization that the balance itself was now more stable than in the days of the bipolar Cold War. He adds that this would lead to a, quote, new world order in which stability would result, not from the clash of competing interests, but from the evolution of habits in mutual restraint, coexistence, and ultimately cooperation. This cooperation and the lessening of tensions formed the basis of what was called détente, which was a French word which meant the easing of tensions. The hope was that reduced tensions and a world of equilibrium and stability would incentivize the Soviets to behave themselves and not seek expansion. Again, it was similar to Kennan's vision that if the United States could implement a, quote, long-term patient but firm and vigilant containment, policy and the creation of a balance of power could influence the Soviets to abandon their aggressive tendencies. Kennan himself acknowledged the similarities between his views and Nixon and Kissinger's. He said of Kissinger, quote, Henry understands my views better than anyone at state ever has. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. As I said earlier, part of Nixon and Kissinger's realism included a recognition that all nations had legitimate interests, regardless of their ideology, even if that ideology conflicted with traditional American values. This was a departure from the hopes of many Americans that the United States could promote regime change in the Soviet Union, or perhaps that the Soviet Union would actually collapse. For realists like Nixon and Kissinger, the Soviets, with all of their tanks, ships, planes, and nuclear weapons, were a fact of life. They were here to stay. 
and the best thing to do was to accept that and make the best of it. There is some irony to all of this. Nixon's philosophical change from anti-communist crusader to realist was made possible by his reputation as an anti-communist. Historian John Lewis Gaddis wrote, quote, Nixon had been so staunch an anti-communist over the years that flexibility now took the aura of statesmanship rather than softness, thus according him greater freedom of action than his more liberal rivals for the presidency could have expected. In other words, Nixon's credibility from years of opposing communism gave him enough flexibility when actually dealing with the communist world. Part of fostering detente and developing that balance of power meant holding real negotiations with the communists. Many conservatives believe that having summits with the Soviets would allow the Soviets to take advantage of the United States, as they believed happened with FDR at the Yalta Conference. By contrast, Nixon welcomed the idea of a summit as a chance for both nations to discuss and promote mutual interests. Nixon and Kissinger believed that back channels could be a major part of this whole strategy. As we saw in the Anna Chenault incident, Nixon made full use of secret envoys. They could help circumvent the bureaucracy he loathed while keeping Nixon's less-than-savory activities hidden. Realism fit Nixon and Kissinger's temperaments very well. Both men were born strategists and relished the idea of being bold statesmen remaking a new international system through high-stakes diplomacy. There was something about their brand of realism that some felt bred a sense of superiority, a sense of intellectual superiority. America had been fighting the Cold War in a certain way for so long, but here were Nixon and Kissinger saying that everyone was doing it the wrong way and they had a better way. Nixon and Kissinger seemed to be saying that America had gotten carried away with its sense of moralism and exceptionalism. They believed that true statesmen engaged in real politic. Screw morals. This was all about interests. Morals were for the weak-minded. Kissinger himself once said, quote, Our objective was to purge our foreign policy of all sentimentality. Of course, there was no shortage of critics of Nixon and Kissinger's realism, both then and now. There were those on the left who felt that realism was merely the continuation of anarchic, Darwinistic politics, where interest governed a nation's actions, the same policies they felt that had led to two world wars. And then there were those on the right and the left who felt that by engaging with realism, they were sacrificing America's values and exceptionalism. They felt that America couldn't divorce its morals from its policies. After all, wasn't America conceived in the idea that equality and liberty were morally good and tyranny was morally evil? Communism, to them, wasn't just a threat to the nation, but it was also morally wrong. It was oppressive to its own people and aggressively expansionist. These critics believed that if America recognized what the Soviets considered their interests, that it would basically legitimize their immoral regime. Democrats like John F. Kennedy repeatedly equated communism with slavery, tyranny, and unlawful aggression. Kennedy himself once said, quote, The communists are determined to destroy us, and regardless of what hand of friendship we may hold out or what arguments we may put up, 
The only thing that will make that decisive difference is the strength of the United States. An up-and-coming Republican governor of California, named Ronald Reagan, also viewed the struggle against communism in moral terms, saying, quote, We cannot buy our security, our freedom, from the threat of the bomb by committing an immorality so great as saying to a billion human beings, now enslaved behind the Iron Curtain, Give up your dreams of freedom, because to save our own skins, we're willing to make a deal with your slave masters. Realism, to anti-communists on the American left and right, meant ignoring the moral component of the Cold War. And to those on the right, who viewed the struggle in zero-sum terms, any recognition of Soviet interests was merely appeasement by another name. This doesn't mean that Nixon and Kissinger abandoned all ideological concerns, at least publicly. They still believed that the Soviet Union was an entity to be contained. The whole idea behind detente was to give it an incentive to change its behavior from one of aggression to one of cooperation. Nixon, in a speech at Oxford during his retirement in 1978, said he believed that America's free society was superior to the Soviet system saying, quote, that with everything that is wrong in our society and in the free societies, we advertise our weaknesses, while in theirs, they bury theirs. I believe that what we stand for is worth saving. And, as we'll see, Nixon continued much of what Eisenhower and Kennedy did when it came to using covert action against left-wing regimes around the world. But for many, Nixon and Kissinger's new policies meant that ideology and morality were taking a back seat, or at least had to take a back seat for a stable world order. And some of America's allies who were ideologically and strategically aligned with the United States now found themselves wondering if they could count on the new administration. There was also another element of the Nixon-Kissinger foreign policy, a tactic they would employ. It was the perception that they cultivated of unpredictability. Nixon actively promoted the impression that he was unpredictable, maybe even a little unstable, so that adversaries would fear what he would do. This, they felt, would give them enhanced leverage. In fact, when an American prisoner of war was released by the North Vietnamese, he recounted that his capturers thought Nixon was, quote, off his rocker, Nixon loved it and wrote, quote, it was absolutely essential for them to think that. He later said, quote, I want the North Vietnamese to believe that I've reached the point where I might do anything to stop the war. Kissinger had told an aide who was about to visit the Soviet Union, tell the Soviets Nixon was, quote, crazy. So at the start of Nixon's administration, realism was in. It was a bold new direction in American foreign policy. But Nixon had a formidable set of challenges that would test this new approach. How this strategy played out in one of the most tumultuous eras of American history is the subject of the next episode of This American President. To learn more about Richard Nixon, check out 
The Presidency of Richard Nixon by Melvin Small, Nixon and Mao by Margaret McMillan, and Strategies of Containment by John Lewis Gaddis. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. Special thanks to Jennifer Mazella for her contributions in producing this episode. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Check out evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.